Episode number three, Crime Prevention Works Best with a Plan. This is the Crime School Radio Show, where industry experts discuss the business of fighting crime and prevention strategies for making places safe. Leading today's discussion is security expert, Chris McGoey. Welcome to Crime School. I'm glad you're able to join us for this episode as we continue our discussion about making places safe for people and property. Today's topic is crime prevention works best with a plan. If you ask anyone who spent a career in law enforcement or in the criminal justice system, they will tell you that the arrest and incarceration model is not our best national strategy for fighting crime. If you think about it, someone always has to be victimized first before an arrest can occur. And if you ask anyone in law enforcement what our percentage of crimes are actually cleared by arrest, it will be surprisingly low. Everyone agrees that crime prevention is our best strategy. If we can get everyone working together towards that goal, we will achieve a much greater result. Most criminologists define crime prevention as the anticipation, recognition, and assessment of crime risk and the development of a plan to reduce or eliminate those risks. This axiom is well known to crime prevention professionals, but it's easier to say than it is to accomplish. You must have a well-articulated and clearly defined plan in order to execute successfully. Crime prevention is only a well-intended theory until an assessment is made and a security plan of action is implemented in response to that assessment. Today's special guest is a guru in the field of crime prevention. He will walk us through why crime prevention is so important to our success and why it works best with a plan. Stay with me for a very short break while I get our guest on the line. This is the Crime School Radio Show. After a short break, we will introduce today's special guest. Welcome back. Today's special guest is internationally known crime prevention expert, Tim Zering. You know, there's a lot of talented, dedicated, hardworking people out there in the field of crime prevention, but Tim is exceptional. In my opinion, Tim is a star. During 29 years as a crime prevention professional, Tim has taught, I don't know, must be tens of thousands of people both in government and in the private sector. I know he's worked domestically. I know he's worked internationally. And he teaches them how to understand crime problems as they affect different property types and how to implement highly effective crime prevention programs. I know many of these programs uh, Tim developed in his 22 years running the crime prevention unit for the Mesa, Arizona Police Department. 
most notably the crime-free programs that we'll talk about in great detail on future episodes. You know, I hope to have Tim on this show many times as a guest, so I think I'll let his background and his experience sort of trickle out over the course of, of several episodes. So I've known Tim Ziering and worked with him for at least 18 to 20 years. Uh, Tim, I think I literally ran across you in in Arizona back in 1995 or 1996. Somehow we hooked up. Well, first of all, (laughs) I want to say thank you for inviting me to be on your show. And you're absolutely right. That was the time. In fact, I was teaching a crime-free class And I met you when you came to attend the class, and I was really glad I had a chance to meet you because you've helped me out immeasurably in learning many of the principles that I needed to make the crime-free program a success. So I would like to say on the record, thank you for all of the help that you've given us in the International Crime-Free Association. You know, I think we were actually out there beating the same turf. Uh, I got introduced to you through the Arizona Multi-Housing Association, and that's how I got on to you. They told me you were out there pushing this crime prevention program, and I was out there beating my head against the wall as a security consultant trying to solve problems. And we both had a lot of related issues. Um, Oh, my. Yeah. Everything that you just said sure takes me back. Um, Working as a police officer in patrol, uh, beating our heads against the wall, trying to solve crime problems in apartment communities, the managers would say to us, you know, they paid their rent, and we can't evict them unless they fail to pay the rent because of the antiquated landlord-tenant laws we had at the time. So in the same way that you were looking for some solution to avoid beating your head against the wall, uh, we were doing the exact same thing at the police department. Well, you know, the component that I was missing all the years I've been doing this was the law enforcement component. I had a heck of a time getting different law enforcement agencies to buy in on crime prevention and to help private property owners, you know, with their crime problems. Imagine that. And here you are out there preaching the gospel of crime prevention in Arizona, arguing the same thing, but from the other side of the street. You're arguing that law enforcement needs to partner with the private sector, and together we could do some business. You know, that's a great point. And I'll tell you, one of the problems with an outsider trying to talk to law enforcement is you're an outsider and they just don't think that you know as well as they do uh, the scope of the problem or perhaps maybe even the, the ways to solve the problem. But I think there's even a greater issue than that. And that is that law enforcement gets a little nervous about endorsing a particular person or an entity that is outside of the law enforcement agency itself. Once I looked at the idea that the solution had to come from within the law enforcement agency, there was no friction at all because it was coming from within our own system, not from an outsider. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about that. Let's just jump ahead a little bit and talk about that, about, you know, whose job is it to protect victims from crime? Well, you know, it's an interesting question that you ask because even the multi-housing industry felt that the police department had no business uh, getting involved in the crime problems that were associated with multifamily housing. And then I can go down the list with the other applications of the crime-free programs in hotel and motel, overnight lodging, manufactured housing communities, and storage facilities, which will be addressed on a future episode, hopefully. But 
uh, one of the directors of, of one of the housing associations actually said to me that the police department getting involved in multifamily housing crime prevention was likened to the camel sticking its nose under the tent. So there was a great deal of pushback in the very beginning because even they debated who should be responsible for dealing with crime prevention. Well, don't you think, I mean, this is what I heard from my side of the street, the property owners figure, heck, we're paying a ton of taxes, a lot of property taxes, and why don't we get more service from the police? Why can't we get faster responses? Why don't you arrest these people when I call you? You know, that's a brilliant observation, but let me let me tell you where law enforcement, if they're thinking correctly, looks at this. The the questions that you just brought up in the mind of a landowner are questions that really revolve around reactive law enforcement. You know, why don't we get more patrol, might be more proactive, but why don't they arrest more people um, is, is reactive. The, the idea is if we can prevent the formability of crime, if we can prevent crime from ever even starting, we don't have to worry about the issues of reactive law enforcement. The fact is, there's just not enough law enforcement to react to every crime that happens. Uh, there's, it's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a task that is so huge, it just can't be done. So in a crime prevention practitioner's mind, it's better to prevent the crime by understanding the elements that are necessary for a crime to begin, and then prevent the crime in the first place. Well, give me an example of that. Tell our listeners what are the basic elements necessary to commit a crime. I'm going to tell you what they are, but I want to I want to do a comparison. Uh, I want to talk about preventing fire first. And the reason is because people do believe in fire prevention, but a lot of your listeners may not believe in crime prevention. They may believe that if a criminal really wants to commit a crime, he's going to do it, and there's nothing you can do. You're helpless to prevent crime. And that's just not true. So through comparison, I want to show that crime prevention is actually a science. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's not some type of voodoo magic. It's not high in the sky, you truly can prevent crime through science. Fire science has been teaching for decades that there's three necessary elements for a fire. You have to have heat, you have to have fuel, and you have to have oxygen. To extinguish a fire, you have to remove one of those elements, either take away the fuel or take away the oxygen. Uh, even you can take away the heat and it'll, it'll put out a fire. Or if you're careful, you can avoid a situation where fuel and oxygen and ignition sources that produce heat could start a fire, and that's fire prevention. Likewise, with crime prevention, we have to understand the, form the formability of crime. You have to have a target first and foremost. You can't have a crime if there's not a target. Now, that target may be a person. It may be an object, but there has to be a target, something that's going to be the, the uh, focus of the criminal's intent. Then, talking about the criminal, you have to have someone with the desire to commit a crime. You and I see opportunities every day where there are targets that we could attack. Uh, a woman with a purse and a shopping cart as she's loading groceries or numerous other things. But we don't attack those targets like an unaccompanied purse because we don't have the desire to do so. And then the third thing that you need is the opportunity to commit a crime. If there are no 
protections in place, a person may say, this is a great opportunity for me to commit the crime. There's no security guards in the parking lot. There's no cameras. I don't have to worry about being detected or apprehended. They have an opportunity. So what we see, if there's three things happening in the same place at the same time, there's a suitable target. There's a person who has a desire to commit the crime, and they've got the opportunity. They're likely to commit a crime. So when it comes to crime prevention, we have to know how to harden the target or find a way to take away that desire from the criminal or create some type of a situation where the opportunity won't be there to commit a crime. Well, how come you and I don't have the desire to commit a crime? You know, there's a lot of theories, including the bad seed theory, that some people are just born with this propensity to commit crime. Uh, you, you've heard that people say, my dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic and I was born an alcoholic. Uh, you, you hear people that say, my daddy was a criminal and his daddy was a criminal and I guess I was just born an outlaw. Um, I don't, I don't really know too much about the bad seed theory, but there are socioeconomic reasons that have been suggested and numerous other reasons why some people have a propensity to commit crime where other people don't. Uh, some of it comes down to social values and mores, but the, the fact is we know there are some people who want to commit crime. And so what we have to do is we have to assume that all people are motivated to commit crimes, never let down our guards, and take universal precautions against crime. And you and I don't want to go to prison either. Well, sure. That's another great point. Some people are motivated by consequences. Um, when they see those consequences, they're motivated to behave themselves. Uh, you've seen in some third world countries, you'll hear, for instance, they cut off somebody's hand for stealing something. Uh, I'll tell you, they won't do that again. Well, maybe one more time. But after that, they won't do it again because the consequences are so high. So we've talked about the form formability of crime. Let's look at, you know, target hardening, you know, making a target much harder to penetrate by using better security, taking away the desire by increasing the efforts needed to commit crime or taking away the desire by increasing the consequences of getting caught or reducing the opportunities by minimizing um, the person's uh, perception that they're not going to be challenged. You know, virtually every person I've arrested didn't think they'd be caught. <laughs> That's another thing. So you sure. always you always wonder about the laws that we have. Are they how much of a deterrent? You know, really are they? Or the fear of going to prison? Uh, certainly, we have a great fear of that. But does uh, the ordinary career criminal? You know, does that bother him that much? Well, you know as well as I do, there are two types of offenders in general. You have deterrable offenders and non-deterrable offenders. There are some people who are not deterred uh, by fear of apprehension or incarceration. A uh, perfect example would be a jealous husband or a jealous boyfriend that goes to kill somebody uh, who, you know, was... Uh, involved in a relationship with his significant other. Um, another case might be a, a disgruntled worker who's been laid off or treated badly at work, you know, workplace violence situation. So certainly there are some people that are non-deterrable offenders, but you and I also know that the, the really the vast majority of people are, in fact, deterrable offenders. Okay. So just kind of summarize quickly, uh, there's things we could do. There's things we could do to the target. We could harden the target. We could make it less available. Uh, we can make it less desirable or make the risk of obtaining 
that target or doing something to that target more difficult or the penalty greater and then the opportunity. Uh, Absolutely. And and your your listeners need to understand that there are numerous resources available to them. They don't have to understand all these things themselves. They can contact local law enforcement to have someone come out and look at their target, be it their home or their business or even personal safety classes. Um, a, a business owner could contact their insurance company. Maybe somebody from the risk management department could come out and do an assessment. The Internet is full uh, of great ideas. Your website, crimedoctor.com, of course, is um, a, a great resource for ways to prevent crime. There's there's lots of resources out there, so your listeners don't have to feel like they need to come up with the answers themselves. Well, thank you very much for the shameless plug. <laughs> but um, so that, you know, that brings it to our, I guess, our next category. Uh, and hopefully we'll solve a lot of these issues and we'll address them much more detail in the future at Crime School with uh, different topics. We'll focus on target specifically. We'll focus on desire. We'll focus on opportunity. And on we'll give specific examples of how different property types or how different people under different circumstances and settings can make these things work for them. Well, good for you. What a great, great service that you're providing. So, but this is a big issue. I mean, for the average person that I run across, the average business owner, the average homeowner, I mean, crime is like, wow, this is a big problem. It's not something I could really handle. I mean, what do I know about fighting crime or how do I prevent, you know, stop myself from being a victim? It's just too big of a problem. Surveys have been done time and time again with, you know, different people. I know NBC did one a decade or so ago. And time and time again, crime comes up as the number one concern in our country. It's not the economy. It's not unemployment. It comes back to crime. That's what people are most worried about is going to affect them. And unfortunately, a lot of people, just because they don't know how to solve crime, they view criminals like big, heavy rocks. You can't budge them. You can't move them. You just have to work around them, maybe plant some flowers around them. And uh, you, you're just going to have to deal with it because it's it's a fact of the society that we live in today. Or you and, you simply move away from them. Oh, that, and that is true. We We see definitely people who flee the city and move out to urban areas thinking that they can just get away from the crime that way. You bet. But the fact is, you don't have to move away from crime. There are steps that you can take to prevent crime. You don't have to tolerate it. You don't have to just work around it. There are there are legitimate things that you can do because crime prevention is a science. You just have to find the people and the resources that can show you the particular applications to your particular industry or your situation. You know, you said that criminals are like big, heavy rocks. That was an interesting analogy. Uh, it just seems overwhelming uh, and too difficult of a project to, to take on or overcome. But, if, I mean, if they're not like rocks, what are they really? Well, you know, another analogy I use, it's interesting you bring that up, is uh, they're also like weeds. You know, rocks are inadimate objects. They just kind of sit there, and they're very heavy, and they're hard to move. But in another way, they're not just inanimate. These objects actually are alive, and they grow. They spread out. They sprout out. and They actually choke out healthy plants. If you look at a weed, you can cut off the top of a weed, but it's going to grow back again. The, The problem is the roots. So 
really the best way to solve a problem is to find out the root problem itself and then uproot it. If you want a weed to, to never come back, you can't just cut off the top. That's just, that's a surface response. You have to get down to the roots and remove the roots of the problem entirely. So, you know, I, I look at crime in two ways, uh, animated and inanimated. I, I look at it from the big heavy rocks analogy because some people say it's too strenuous or too difficult, but I also look at it from the perspective of weeds because this is something if you don't deal with it, it's going to spread out and it's going to get even worse. You know, that's uh, a perfect analogy uh, as well. It uh, makes me think of like gang activity, you know, just bad families, people with bad associates. They're just like those weeds, aren't they? You got to get them all or they'll, they'll come back or they'll, uh, they'll, they'll raise new weeds and, and, and just drive everybody away, the good people away. Unfortunately, a lot of people feel it's the government's job to deal with bad seeds or, you know, family issues that they just want the government to pass more laws. They want the government to figure out some way to build more prisons and fund them. Why can't they just catch all these criminals and arrest them? Uh, they want the police to be more visible. They don't want to pay more taxes for more police cars. Uh, they don't want to pay more taxes for faster response. They don't want to pay more taxes for incarcerating people. But the fact is, they feel that the government should be responsible for the crime problems. And, and I have to remind people from time to time, we are the government. We are the people. We the people of the United States, right? Okay, we're the people. We're the government. And Sir Robert Peel, uh, oh man, way back in the 1600s, I believe it was, said, the people are the public. The public are the police. The police are only members of the public that are paid to give full-time attention to duties that are incumbent on every citizen in the interest of community welfare and existence. I've memorized that because I like to tell people that this is not a new philosophy. The philosophy has been around for hundreds of years. You can even go back to Hammurabi's code. The idea is we as a society, not the police, not the government, we as a society, we need to establish what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, and we need to accept responsibility for making sure that we're doing our part to prevent crime. Well, that sounds perfect in theory. Do you think that's happening in practice? Unfortunately, it's not. Uh, you get a lot of people that, again, they don't know how to solve a problem, and so it's easy for them to throw up their arms and say, I'm not the police. You know, that's the police department's job to protect me. I, I don't know how to operate with less risk. Uh, I can't sentence people to prison. I don't have any power. The police have all the power. Uh, certainly, you remember in the last decade, maybe further back than that, it was very common to see on police cars the motto, to protect and serve. Uh, that's come down because really what it was was an admission from the police department that it's our job to take care of you. And now you see models along the lines of police and community working together. This, this whole concept of the idea that crime is not a police problem, it's a community problem. Therefore, it's going to require a community solution. So just because you pay taxes, just because you've got a police force, doesn't mean you're not part of the solution. Uh, what I try to tell people is when you look at the crime triangle, target, desire, and opportunity, there are different places that we can accept responsibility. 
Uh, let's just take one for example in multifamily rental housing. I tell property managers that the police department's job is to attack the target. The police will come out, look at the target, and say, I can tell you right now why the criminals are coming here. The lighting is bad, the landscaping is bad, maybe insufficient locks, whatever it is. Let's target harden the property. The manager's job is to attack the desire aspect of the crime triangle by not renting to people who have the desire to commit crime or evicting people who have the desire to commit crime. And there's multiple strategies to fulfill those two things. The third aspect is the opportunity for crime. It goes back to the formability of crime, and that is we get the residents not to leave easy opportunity. Roll up your windows, lock your doors, take your valuables out of your car, lock your apartment. Don't leave your key in the ignition with the engine running while you, you know, run to the apartment, you know, things like that. So once we empower citizens to see how they can prevent crime, it takes away that argument of it's not my job. I pay taxes. It's the police job to protect me. All of a sudden, they begin to realize there are things I can do to prevent crime. They just need some education and training. Well, maybe it's for years we've had shows about the police and not so much about citizens and neighborhood watches and things. You know, remember back, way back when, when you worked for the Mesa Police Department, I lived in Arizona as well, and I remember there was always an issue with why can't police respond faster? You know, why aren't there more cars out there? And I found that the general public really didn't have an understanding of how many officers there are on duty at any particular time or what kind of terrain they have to cover, you know, during a shift. Oh, boy, you just hit the nail right on the head. And this was one of the exercises I tried to use as an aha moment. I would point out the demographics in Mesa, you know, between 150 and 175 square miles during the times that I was teaching the program. Uh, and I would try to point out the number of apartment communities, well over 1,800 multifamily housing communities. I'm talking big communities. This doesn't even count the little fourplexes and duplexes and rental homes. But, um, you know, looking at nearly 2,000 rental properties, I would ask the students in class to guess how many police cars were actually, uniformed police cars were actually out patrolling the streets at that moment. They'd guess 200, 300. I'd get people that say 500 or more. And I would tell them if I if I literally had to throw money down on the table, I would bet there's about 50 at this very moment. And typically it ranged between 48 and 52 police cars uh, to patrol 1,800 to 2,000 rental properties. And, and you've got to keep in mind in the city where I worked from 86 until 2008, only a little over one-third of all of our residents lived in rental housing. Two-thirds, double that, lived in single-family homes. We didn't have enough police patrol for just the rental properties, let alone enough for double that, the people who lived in single-family homes. And then you haven't even yet gotten into all the different businesses. And it's private property. I mean, the police are, the, the police are first and foremost charged with uh, patrolling the public streets and responding to calls, not to be the private security officers of apartment owners or business owners. Certainly. And, and I'll tell you, we found that there were some businesses in our city that when we totaled up the number of hours that we spent in police response, uh, you know, the time it took to actually respond, clear the call, and leave, uh, on an annual basis, for some businesses, it actually came out to almost a full-time employee. I mean, they could have hired a police officer for 40 hours a week to just stay inside their business 
I'm talking some big box stores, by the way, with shoplifting and other issues, uh, where what they were basically doing was getting a free police officer to work 40 hours because they paid their taxes. And I get they're paying their taxes, but the police department has other responsibilities as well, uh, not to be private security, as you said. And that's where the frustration uh, flows, both both directions, from the business operator, they don't understand why can't I get better service? Why can't I have my own police officer? Why can't you respond anytime I need you if a crime is occurring? I'd like to go back to what, what I mentioned earlier about the difference between proactive law enforcement or crime prevention versus reactive enforcement or prevention. You know, some people think you prevent crime by locking people up. Uh, the, the idea is people need to understand. They just need a little bit of training. They need a little bit of education that there are things that they can do so they don't get into that position of wanting more police officers. The, the simplest way to describe crime prevention is to just break it down and define it. Crime prevention is nothing more than the anticipation or recognition, you could say the appraisal, of crime risk. You're just looking at certain industries or certain individuals and anticipating or recognizing or taking an appraisal of what kinds of risks are peculiar to that person or that type of industry. What do you typically see happen in the crime reports to this type of person or this type of industry? Then you develop a plan to reduce or eliminate those risks. So if I'm in a business, let's take a... Um, a convenience store, a template, a crime template would be armed robbery is a common thing in a convenience store uh, or beer theft. So, you know, a lot of times you hear these places referred to as stop and rob. Hey, wait a second. There's you're, a crime you're, template. You're picking on my old industry now. Come on. <laughs> I forgot you did come from that industry. That's right. Well, you know as well as anybody, there's a template there, uh, and it's not fair because this industry has taken huge strides, and certainly you were the genesis of some of the biggest strides they made in that industry, but they've begun to look at ways that they can anticipate and recognize crime risks. They've appraised those things, and then they have developed plans to reduce and eliminate those risks. And they've done that very successfully. And especially those businesses that have done it well, they're not bemoaning or cursing the police department for not having faster response. They've accepted the Robert Peel philosophies of community policing that it's my responsibility to. Well, you and I both know that partnership is the best way. So you have an understanding of what everybody's job is, how each person uh, can help. Uh, certain people or certain entities are better at doing things. I mean, uh, you and I both know that rental housing, the property managers have far more power than the police. Policemen can't come out and evict somebody on the spot or make them leave the property if they live there, but a landlord can. Sure, the police don't have the power to screen who moves in. Property managers, and, and this goes to the hotel lodging industry, any place at all, they pick their problems. They choose who they're going to allow to come in. So the police department can't tell them no. So let me kind of recap what you said. You talked about a lot of things there under uh, the de kind of the definition of crime prevention. You know, I mean, number one, you said you should anticipate uh, rather than yes. wait to become a crime victim. Yes. You should be able to find out. If you don't know, there's people to ask. There's ways of doing research. Uh, law enforcement is trained in this. How to anticipate what type of problems should occur based on the nature of my property. Is that what you're saying? 
Absolutely. And they don't have to figure this out on their own. Uh, as I mentioned, your website, the, if it's a business, their insurance company has a risk management department. There are police officers that are happy to teach classes or come out on site to help them. There's private consultants. Uh, there's, you know, for a business that's contemplating adding alarms or cameras, uh, people will come out and do a free assessment to tell you what your security weaknesses are because they want to sell cameras or they want to sell alarms. There are so many resources out there to empower people to realize that we're all more successful when the police and the community work together. Okay, so the, the process then is the anticipation process, recognizing that you have a problem, some sort of an appraisal uh, I call that a risk assessment or a crime risk uh, yes. assessment. Before I start developing a security plan or buying alarms or uh, whatever it, it requires, you want to do an evaluation first based on reality, based on what's happening to other people, what's happening on my property before, what's happening on similar or identical properties under similar circumstances. Absolutely true. And and the other side of that coin is what steps have they taken to avoid those risks? So you not only want to look at the the crimes and, and the things that are happening to other people like you, but what measures have they taken and and evaluate how successful those have been so that you can take at least reason the same reasonable measures or maybe even more reasonable measures if some of their measures haven't worked. And in your experience, crime prevention actually works. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I can talk on a broad spectrum from multi-housing to overnight lodging to self-storage. We have a crime-free business program. Uh, I was involved with Neighborhood Watch as well as retail theft and all types of crime prevention in a city of almost 500,000 people uh, supervising the crime prevention unit and a crime-free unit, we serviced all of the crime prevention needs for every industry in that large city. And I can tell you, uh, whenever you've got a commitment to reducing crime, it's successful. It's, it's not hard to teach people how to prevent crime. It's hard to teach people how to have the commitment to follow through. If, if we can get people to take that commitment to prevent crime, we can give them the tools they need to do it. And it's not always free, is it? Sometimes it comes at a cost. Yeah, that's true. Uh, we, we tell people that there are some things that you can do for free, such as avoiding a risk entirely. It doesn't cost money. If you just simply avoid the risk altogether, sometimes you can save money. We're just not going to allow this to happen or that to happen, so we don't have to hire security to avoid the, to, uh, to deal with the problem. Uh, sometimes you, you take steps to spread the problem to somebody else, maybe get a security company to come in, or you transfer the risk by getting a bigger insurance policy. Uh, there's, there's numerous strategies. It's a, it's a topic maybe for another day, but sometimes it costs money. Sometimes it doesn't. It just depends on which strategy you adopt. Well, that was a pretty good segue. I think, uh, our goal here at crime school is going to be to provide this core education and training that you're talking about where people could come and learn about crime prevention for the first time, or just to freshen up on, on the topic. And, and hopefully people will participate uh, you and I both know that there's no one single solution to solve any particular problem. There's That's lots true. there's lots of ways of coming at it, lots of different approaches that work. Uh, so I want to hear from listeners. I want to get their input. I want to get their feedback. I want to know what they've tried, what's worked, what has not worked, and what do they think about all this stuff. 
We have a lot to talk about at Crime School. I definitely uh, would like to have you come back if you're willing. I'd love to. I know our listeners want to hear all about the crime-free programs, but my promise to them is we're not just going to gloss over uh, these topics. We're going to hit them hard. Uh, We're going to try not to be vague. We're going to try to give some uh, action plans about what could be done step-by-step to really make a difference. And at Crime School, our... Our subtopic is making places safe. That's kind of the goal. There are things that we could do together to make places safe. So, Tim, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. You are the first guest here at Crime School because you are an absolute expert in the field of uh, crime prevention, and I hope you'll come back and, and share some more with us in the future. I want to thank you for the opportunity Uh, And I'm certainly going to look forward to another one uh, sometime soon. This is the Crime School Radio Show with your host, Chris McGoey. We invite you to comment on today's topic and join the Crime School community. For more information and show notes from this episode, please visit crimeschool.com.